Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, Renee Von Medding of Equality for Children on being weeks pregnant with her third baby, which her wife will have to fight to prove she is a parent of. Dr. Lisa Morton, who was born with congenital heart disease. And we'll talk about the trauma of living with a lifelong illness and how to manage it. And Dr. Harry Barry on the power of connection. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm not going to talk for long because I have three incredible guests and I really want this show to be more about them than it is about me. But suffice to say, I am great. I I'm planning a little sneak back to my sister in Michigan. Yes, I agree. It would have been much easier if she'd moved to Mayo or even Manchester. But as I left my mum there for a month to help with a new baby, the plan was for my brother to fly back, collect my mum essentially and bring her back. But my sister's turning 40. So I am surprising her by arriving over with my brother and celebrating it with her. I don't know how you feel about surprises. I was blindsided at my own 30th birthday and wish I'd spoken to my husband nicer in the car as we pulled up outside. (laughs) But I haven't given my sister that joy of looking forward to it. I'm going to ambush her and I will let you know how I get on next week. But needless to say, I'll be doing the simple things in life, sitting around a table with all of my family talking and having more newborn baby snuggles. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Congenital heart disease or CHD is the most common birth defect worldwide and between 500 to 600 babies are born with the condition here in Ireland every year. Dr Lisa Morton was a keynote speaker at the Beat Goes On conference which took place in Dublin yesterday organised by the charity Heart Children Ireland as part of Global Congenital Heart Disease Awareness Month. Lisa is also a chartered counselling psychologist offering online psychological therapy, supervision and consultancy and is the co-author of Healing Hearts and Minds. Lisa has lived with a pacemaker since she was 11 days old and spent her childhood in and out of hospital undergoing major surgeries. She joins me on the line now. Lisa, you're very welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me along today. So Lisa, when did you first know you had CHD? Well, I, I haven't known anything else. So I was born with a condition called complete heart block, which means the electrical system in my heart doesn't work. So I was fitted with my first cardiac pacemaker when I was just 11 days old. Um, And that was back in 1978. So it was a world first at the time. And I've depended on a cardiac pacemaker ever since. And would there have been a time where your parents might have explained what was going on? Or as you say, was hospital just as much a part of your life as a playroom? Hospital was a second home to me. I was in and out of York Hill Children's Hospital in Glasgow all the time. Um, so some of my earliest memories are, are being in hospital and my cardiologist and team felt like part of the family, really. And how did it affect you growing up? Well, um, it was all very experimental, obviously, and I was in and out of hospital a lot. By the age of just seven, I'd been fitted with five pacemakers. And in those days, it had to be fitted by a thoracotomy so, and put it onto the heart, which was obviously quite major cardiac surgery. So I remember being very poorly in hospital. Um, the pacemakers, particularly the leads, were quite fickle back then, so they kept breaking. Um, I also remember yeah, being in hospital and kind of lying on a bed and a physicist used to come from Glasgow University and use this big magnet to teach the team how to 
um, kind of put the heart rate up and down. So it was a big part of my life. And I guess until I was about 12, the pacemakers were set at a fixed rate, so my heart couldn't go up and down. So that was physically quite limiting. So I wasn't really allowed to um, do sports at school or sports day or active play or remember being desperate to go to dance lessons like all my friends. Um, so yeah, it had, it had quite a significant impact, I would say. And it sounds like there's a very obvious answer to this question, but would you consider that a, a trauma or is each operation and procedure a trauma? Yes, well, my research interest um, and part of the motivation for me studying psychology was because I felt there was a gap growing up, but it was very survival focused. Although, I mean, to be fair, back in the 80s, we didn't know very much about trauma. So, but there was a kind of a lack of psychosocial support. So I would miss a lot of school. I wasn't necessarily supported in catching up. A lot of the um, stuff that I was going through, my peers were obviously not going through. So I didn't really have other people, other kind of kids my age who had the same experiences. So there was a kind of isolation in that. And, you know, it, it impacts on your relationships, undoubtedly. We know from the, the evidence base it can also impact on finances, life choices. So, so yeah, I would, I would say it was, it, it was traumatic. And I, in my late teens, um, I was diagnosed with um, PTSD. And I did have some pretty horrendous nightmares of being in hospital and kind of got triggered by things like the smell of ghost, which was one of the first things they used to give me after surgery and um, kind of antiseptic because it reminded me of theatre. I knew when I saw your, your job title that in some way your influence, your your experience would have influenced your decision to become yeah. a counselling psychologist and, and help others. And I mean, it's a, it's a big question to ask, but how do we move on from the, the, the sort of why me part of, of illness or a condition or any kind of, of health rock and, and not let it influence everything? I mean, you have to have a moment of empathy and compassion for yourself and accept what you you went through. But how do you work to not let it define you? Well, that's why myself and Tracy Levecki have written a book on um, called Healing Hearts and Minds. And that's on um, a holistic approach to coping well with congenital heart disease. And what, what we look at is, first of all, validating a normal response to unusual adverse life experiences. So there is a sense of we'll just get on with it. And I think a lot of us do that. But I think unless we validate um, a normal response to losses and traumatic life events and also quite a lot of kind of hidden barriers on a day-to-day basis, then we can't kind of work through them and make the most of our lives. So having that psychological support is incredibly important. Having your own life experiences is incredibly important. And I guess one of the things I touched on was often as adults, if um, somebody is diagnosed with a health condition, then they are allowed a normal response to that. It's expected that they will be distressed and it's expected that um, they might need to take time out of work. And there's, you know, often specialist nurses and support around that. Whereas for some reason with congenital heart conditions, um, there seems to be this kind of emphasis on, well, you're lucky to be alive, just get on with it. So kind of validating that, that we need that support. And one of the other things as well is that, you know, usually when we go through difficulties in life, um, our peers are going through similar things. So, you know, if you have going through a divorce or if you're going through kind of redundancy, then you might have 
friends that you can talk to about that. Whereas with this condition, often you don't really have anybody in your life that's going through similar experiences. I can remember going back to primary school, you know, three weeks after fairly major cardiac surgery, and there was no way I could bring that up and talk to my friends about it. So it can be quite isolating. So peer support is is, is a big part of that as well. So I think um, it's quite a nuanced um, way of approaching it. And um, yeah, I think we need to take a, a holistic approach to looking at that. Yeah, and I think holistic is is really the, the major word in that. And that's not necessarily... Mm-hmm what is being given in a, in our hospitals alone and not everybody no. can get access to talk therapy no. and the other therapies that are very necessary to, to coping with all of that. Tell me a little bit about moving from paediatric to adult care. Well, I think transition can be um, a real kind of vulnerable spot for people because obviously you're an adolescent and you really don't want to be different from your peers. So that's a point where... Um, when you're kind of moving from a, a paediatric team to an adult team, then there's there's a particular vulnerability and a lot of people can be lost to care because you really just want to, to be normal, to get on with it. So there can be quite a lot of denial. And often people have been with their childcare kind of paediatric team lifelong. So, you know, there's, there's a kind of a grief and a loss there as well. And getting used to um, new uh, new care team. Historically, uh, adult care hasn't been as established either, so there can be difficulty finding that care. Specialist care is now recommended, but we know, for example, in Scotland, um, and this is not uncommon, that half of people with congenital heart conditions are lost to care in adulthood because many were mistakenly discharged. So recommendations um, have changed around about that. But we know that the lifetime prevalence for adults with congenital heart conditions for anxiety, depression and PTSD are as high as 50%. So we really need to be doing more to acknowledge the kind of additional challenges and to yeah, kind of put stuff in place to mitigate them um, and, and to help to protect people. Um, I, for one, would, would love to see psychologists attached to, to all of the, the medical team um, and just embedded to support families, um, but also to support healthcare professionals and provide consultancy and try to promote a more psychologically informed approach to, to medical provision. And even with everything you had been through in your medical history, you experienced some life-threatening problems in, in A&E being, being mm. misdiagnosed. Yes. Yeah, that was what led me to my advocacy work. So um, over 10 years ago, when my device broke on a Friday night, I presented to A&E and um, I knew it had broken from the symptoms and they put me on a heart monitor and, and it kept dropping to zero, but nobody would believe me. And in fact, after 10 years in, in sorry, <laughs> felt like 10 years, <laughs> 10 hours in A&E, um, I spent quite an anxious weekend. Um, I was a young mum at the time and eventually on the Monday, I kind of went into the hospital with my own mum and we went up to the cardiology department and I just said, I'm not leaving till you take my device. Bearing in mind I'm 100% dependent, not everybody is. Um, so they, they did check it and they found it was faulty. So that started my kind of campaign work and advocacy work. Um, and after that, I submitted a petition to the Scottish Parliament, once I was better, and asked for national healthcare standards because I found out we didn't have them. That's still ongoing. Um, we have specialist standards for the um, kind of the adult sort of national service, but we don't have them yet for the local for local care provision, which is often where 
a lot of the problems occur due to kind of lack of awareness in AME or with GPs. So um, currently, um, Healthcare Improvement Scotland have just restarted that work. And um, again, I'm kind of sitting um, in that work as well. I watched a video of you talking to Scottish Parliament. Uh, it's very, yeah. <laughs> very powerful. And you said in it, you, yeah. you wanted to be heard. You wanted the voice of people with mm-hmm. CHD to be heard. What is yeah. it that you want people to know? I think we're very much a hidden population. I'm I'm probably one of the kind of first or second generation of survivors. So back in the kind of 1940s, 50s, only 20% of us lived to adulthood and now over 90% do. So there's this growing population. And I mean, the most common birth defects in, in 125 babies are born with a cardiac condition. So, you know, most people know somebody who is affected by this. I would like there to be more awareness um, of this growing population and more holistic support and care looking at the kind of psychosocial impact as well. Because if we have more public awareness, then um, automatically there, there will be more support there. Also, kind of just drawing attention to the fact that most adults are not in the care of specialists. Um, and that is now indicated. So it's now recognised that CHD is not curative at all. So um, lifelong care is supposed to kind of happen. But back in the kind of early days, a lot of children were discharged from care because we thought these early surgeries cured them. But we now know that's not the case. So, um, you know, I've heard of quite a lot of people presenting to their GP, maybe kind of in their 30s, pregnant, having cardiac symptoms. So the, the greater the awareness, the less likely that's to happen and the more people will be able to access the care they need. Well, keep going, Lisa. I think you are incredible. You've great heart, great strength. And for more people can go to heartchildren.ie. Dr. Lisa Morton, yeah. you can also get Lisa's book. It's called Healing Hearts and Minds. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're listening to the podcast of Alive and Kicking, which is broadcast on News Talk on Sunday mornings. Now, if you don't follow Renee Von Medding on social media, you should. Not only is she highly entertaining on the realities of life and parenting, she's also an advocate for fertility journeys through her work with Therapy Fertility. And she's an activist for Equality for Children, an organisation for which she is CEO. She's a mother of two girls, Aria and Ava, with her wife Audrey, and they've just announced their third pregnancy. And alongside celebrating, they are preparing for the arduous challenge it will be for Audrey to be recognised as the baby's parent under the current system. And Renee joins me in studio now. Renee, how are you? Good, thanks for having me. So you're coming up to four weeks pregnant, is that right? Five weeks today, actually. Yeah, five weeks today. Um, So I'm not quite at the morning sickness stage, but I'm definitely getting there. (laughs) I'm at the stage where I'm starting to like not like smells and... You know, my boobs are sore and I'm just that kind of low grade, nauseous all the time. And I contacted you and I said, look, this is obviously a sensitive time. Mm. I know you like to speak about this. Mm. You prefer if you didn't have to, but you are an advocate in this area. 
would you like to wait a few weeks? Mm. And you're like, no, like any time is a, is a good time. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, we've we've been so open with this journey and our previous ones. And I'm very aware that, you know, things can happen in the early weeks of pregnancy and anything could happen. And there's no guarantee that uh, this will be our third baby. We're hoping that it is. Um, but I, I suppose part of what I do is showing the reality of what this looks like. Um, and so, so yeah, as, as I said to you, I'm, I'm happy to, to share it. And, and I'm, I'm keenly aware that at some point there might be some not so good news to share, but we're, we're just going to stay hopeful and positive that everything will work out the way it's supposed to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think everybody's different. Some people like to wait the 12 weeks. Some people like to wait, you know, until they're whatever. Different yeah. strokes for different folks. But I do think the more we talk about the good, the bad and the ugly, the more we can all learn and benefit. Definitely. And people don't, I think, don't realise how, how much goes on in the early weeks, especially when you're talking about a, a fertility journey. There is so much anxiety and waiting and medication that you're taking to support the pregnancy, the blood tests, scans, uh, there's just there's so much that goes on in those early weeks. So if you're someone who's going through it and you don't have support of, of people who love you and who know what you're going through, it's incredibly difficult. It's difficult enough even if you have a mountain of support. So um, I think it's important for people to realise how much goes into it, especially in the early days. Because so many people have to go through fertility treatment, you know, it's it's possibly as much as one in five, you know, 20, 20 to 25 percent of all couples, heterosexual couples will need some form of assisted um, fertility treatment in their life. And 100 percent of the LGBTQ plus community will need it. So it's it's a topic that affects so many of us um, and people just don't realize sometimes. And when yourself and Audrey decided to become parents together and started on this journey, you didn't realise the realities um, and the legalities of parenthood. Mm. Explain that a little to people. So when we decided we wanted to have kids, we thought it would be as simple as go to a fertility clinic, select a sperm donor, use one or other of our eggs, create embryos and then have a baby. We decided we wanted to do a thing called reciprocal IVF. We wanted to use Audrey's eggs, um, create embryos, and then I would carry the pregnancies. We went to a clinic here, and this was in 2015 when we started. We went to a clinic and were very quickly told that, unfortunately, they couldn't help us because they didn't have the licenses at the time to do that treatment, which was really frustrating, and especially for me because... I just thought it was so ridiculous that at the time I could have had donor egg treatment and used if Audrey was a man and she had sperm, we could have done it that way. But because she was a woman and she had eggs, just like I had eggs, we couldn't use a sperm donor and her egg. So it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, but like many things in her life, you know, when we've been told no, we've just found another way. So we found another way. We went to Spain for the treatment Um wasn't by any means straightforward. Anyone who's been through IVF knows how challenging it can be and especially if you're going abroad. But we were very lucky that by the end of 2015 I was pregnant with our first daughter Ari or Ava. Sorry, that's the preg that's the brain fog of of the early pregnancy now getting me. Our first daughter is Ava. So I was pregnant with Ava and 
We came back to Ireland and kind of continued on in the pregnancy and we got married when I was five months pregnant. Everything seemed to be falling into place. Now, up until this point, we thought that the challenge was actually getting pregnant. We thought that once we got pregnant, it would be plain sailing. We were a married couple. Ireland had come on in leaps and bounds and we were just so excited for like our life together. When I was about seven or eight months pregnant that bubble was burst. And we found out that because of the current legislation, because I was giving birth, I would be considered the biological mother of this child. And Audrey, my wife, and the actual biological mother of our our child would be a legal stranger to her. And that was completely devastating and shocking and you know, we were in this situation and there was nothing we could do about it. And that is a very helpless feeling when you're in a situation. Um, We were about to become first time parents and knowing that we were going to be in this situation and no one could help us. It is, it is what it is. It was what it was. I would have to go and register as a single parent. And it was the feeling of it just being so unjust and inequitable and just plain wrong it didn't make any sense and but that's that's what happened Ava was born in August 2016 and one of the worst experiences we've ever had as a couple as parents was going into the registration unit in Great Lombard Street in Dublin and sitting in a waiting room full of other parents who could go in and register as parents to their child with no questions, no questions about DNA or genetics. But as long as you're a man and a woman going in with your baby, there you go, you're the parents. And we just sat there in silence. And when we went in, the registrar looked at the two of us and said, which one is the mother? And I was like stumbling over my words and I said well, well we both are well she was like well who gave birth and I said I did and she's like okay Renee I'm just going to be asking all the questions to you now and she didn't include Audrey at all there was no it was just very clinical and cold and um, it was it was awful and as you say, Ireland has come on leaps and bounds or so mm. we think we've celebrated same-sex marriage we're inclusive and and yet this is still going on now and and Ava is six. So what has changed since then? So a lot has changed and we have come part of the way. So anyone who's listening to this now and potentially same-sex parents who've gone through fertility treatment in Ireland since 2020 may be completely blissfully unaware that any of this has gone on because from 2020 onwards, a new piece of legislation called the Children and Family Relationships Act was commenced, which means that if you have fertility treatment in an Irish clinic, so as you mentioned, I work at Therapy Fertility, anyone who comes for treatment with us, um, same-sex female couple, whether they do IUI, IVF, reciprocal IVF, they are both automatically parents from the birth of the child, as long as your child's born in Ireland. So that came in in 2020. As part of that, there was also an amnesty, let's say, for children conceived to same-sex female couples prior to that. So if you conceived a child through donor conception 
through a fertility clinic, has to be through a clinic anywhere in the world, and your child was born in Ireland, you could then go to court, get a, a declaration of parentage retrospectively, and then go back to the registration unit and get a new birth cert for your child. So essentially, that's what Audrey and I were able to do. Not very long ago, we only ended up being able to do it in the end of 2021. And we got the new birth certs at the start of 2022. So we had to go to court and apply for a retrospective declaration that Audrey was the parent of these two children. And then we had to go to the registration unit and get new birth certs. So we were covered because of this amnesty. However, going forward, anyone who doesn't meet those very specific criteria of conceiving in an Irish clinic, using a particular type of sperm donor that goes on a national registry, and then having the child physically born in Ireland. If you don't meet all those criteria, you don't comply with the legislation and you don't benefit from that legislation. So when Audrey and I decided that we were going to try for our third child, we still had embryos in our clinic abroad. And we were faced with this dilemma of, do we use those embryos and risk not complying with the legislation? Or do we start from scratch? Do we try to do another cycle of IVF in Ireland, put ourselves through physical and financial burden? It probably wouldn't even work because, you know, it's been five years since we did it. And as most people know, age impacts egg quality. So we decided we were going to go ahead. Why should we put our family at risk? Because the laws are completely ridiculous and arbitrary in saying that it has to be an Irish clinic. It can't be an international fertility clinic because those same standards and criteria don't apply to heterosexual couples. The amount of heterosexual couples that travel for IVF. Now, you shouldn't have to travel for IVF. You should be able to have it here. And price shouldn't be a reason that you're going abroad. But if you still want to go abroad, you should have every right to. But with same-sex female couples right now, the government is saying, no, you have to do it in Ireland. So we decided we were going to go ahead, use our embryos, and we will just continue to fight it. And and that's the situation we're in. So I'm currently five weeks pregnant. If this baby is born, this baby will have one parent. And its identical sibling will have two. And I mean, obviously it's unjust. We've we've said that. But what is the fallout for the children? People might be listening and think, but you know you're the parent mm. or do you know she's the mm. parent? Your your daughters and whoever this baby may become to be will know who the mm. parents are. What is the, the, the issue aside from the injustice? So aside from the injustice, I suppose it's just the practicality of raising a child. Anyone who has ever raised a child or knows someone who has raised a child knows that there are every single day activities that a child needs consent for. If you are not a legal parent or a guardian, you cannot consent to anything. So for most people, the very first thing that requires consent is a heel prick test. Audrey can't sign for that. Audrey can't be the one to consent for that. Um, 
any sort of vaccinations, any sort of doctor's checkup, anything medically, anything financially, anything educationally, anything to do with that child's upbringing. Not only was that taken away from Audrey, that she wasn't allowed to care for her children in the way she wanted to, that's all she wanted to do, was to be able to care for them, keep them safe, protect them. But it also created this imbalance in our family where everything was on me. The responsibility was all on me to do everything. And all she wanted to do was take part in that, but she couldn't. Yeah. And there's obviously legal implications mm-hmm. if anything is to happen mm-hmm. to you um, that falls onto the the children. And aside from, I mean, injustice is not a small thing. There's a message being sent out in this situation you're different, you're Mm. different, you're different, you're not the same as a heterosexual couple. And we want to move away from that. And I know there's also implications with surrogacy and this this road with this fertility road is not easy for people. Mm. So to slap this extra frustration and issues on top of this, there isn't really any need for it when really ultimately it comes down to a stroke of a pen to change all of this. And, you know, and, you know, obviously... The wider discussion with surrogacy and assisted um, human reproduction, you know, yes, it is complicated. It is complex, but it's also doable. And we're getting there. There is progress being made. But when you look at Audrey and I's situation, the work has already been done. The majority of the work to put in put in place this system whereby two women with a donor conceived child can both be parents to that child. That system has already been put in place. So these technicalities of, oh, the child has to be born in Ireland. Oh, it has to be in a clinic. Oh, it has to be in an Irish clinic. Oh, it can't be a known donor prior to 2020. Like there's all these little situations that haven't been fixed and the hard work has been done so it literally as you say it's a stroke of a pen it's technicalities it's going back looking at that and saying hang on we inadvertently caused a situation here by the wording of this particular section of of the of the bill let's fix that because it's causing real life issues to actual children and you know i think the the irish government is always very careful about saying We're putting the children first. Well, anyone could look at our family and say the way that this legislation is set up is not putting the children first. How is it putting the children first to have two children, to have their two parents and then another child just because of what year they were conceived in to have one? It It doesn't doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. How can people support you? I suppose the the number one thing is really informing yourself of the issue. So you can follow Equality for Children. Um, If you don't follow me, you can follow me. I I talk about this all the time. And really understanding the issues at play. It, It is complex, but it's also very simple. It's children, parents, family. It shouldn't matter how a child was conceived or born. It shouldn't matter if they have one parent or two, what the sex of those parents are, where they were born, what year they were born. If a child is in a family unit, they need to be protected within that family unit. And it really is quite simple. So I I suppose for people to be vocal about it, you know, if there's an election happening, that it needs to be an issue, um, writing to their TDs, writing into the senators, writing into the all of anyone who will listen and just making it 
um, a bigger issue. I think so many people just still assume that the marriage referendum in 2015 fixed everything and it didn't. We are so far away from what we were promised as equality. We're so far away from it. And I think we see it as a fight for same-sex couples, but it's actually a fight for all of us, for all of us to be involved in as a society. Absolutely. For people to find out more, they can go to equalityforchildren.ie or you'll find Renee on Instagram. She's at Renee Von Medding. Renee, I love your openness. I love your honesty, your sense of humour, the family <laughs> love that pours out from your Instagram post and your pages. I'm sorry you have to fight for this. Um, may it all be fixed by the yeah. time this baby arrives healthy <laughs> and happy. And I wish you all the best with the rest of the pregnancy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're listening to the podcast of Alive and Kicking, which is broadcast on News Talk on Sunday mornings. Now, my next guest, Dr. Harry Barry, has a long-standing interest in mental health and the role of neuroscience in the causation and treatment of mental health conditions such as depression, anxiety, panic and phobias. His latest book, however, covers everyone looking at the power of human connection. And he joins me in studio now. Harry, you're very welcome Thank back. Thank you very much, Leonard. Great to be here. Always a great voice of reason, even though you have all of this knowledge, mm-hmm. this wealth of experience you always just bring it down to everyday, everyday real life. life and that's yeah, your yeah, that's yeah, your that, skill that, that's been my whole raison d'etre do you know what I mean so all the books I try to distill the essence of things and bring them down to simplicity because in life 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 should be basically simple most of the things we do in life are simple so let's 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 make all areas of mental health and uh, emotional connection between us simple and that was my whole point in writing this book I was very concerned Claire I began to write this, believe it or not, uh, prior to the pandemic because I was very worried at that stage. I could see social media and technology gradually eroding in on our normal human interconnective skills. I could see it happening, especially in younger groups, especially in, say, the under 30 groups. Uh, But I I was beginning to see it go right through the whole of of our population. And then along came the pandemic. And what happened in the pandemic? We suddenly realised for the first time in our whole lives, in a worldwide experiment, what would life be like if we couldn't talk to each other, if we all had to separate from each other, if we had to communicate only through technology and and social media, etc. Now, it was wonderful to be able to do that. That, That's the great pluses of, of technology and social media. But my goodness, did we all crave that human interaction. We all felt kind of... deflated, we felt stressed all the time, we felt demotivated I, I, I talked to one man yesterday and he talked about his total he nearly didn't want to go out, he, he nearly began to lose all motivation during that period of time and then out of that, of course, has come hybrid working, which is so great in some senses for so many people, because particularly people with families, you know what I mean, are people who want to live away from large centres. But there is a price going to be paid for this, Claire, do you know what I mean? And that price is going to be uh, if we're not communicating with each other on a face-to-face level, if we're working at home in a box room or a small room or and you're spending your all day answering emails and Zoom calls and we think we're connecting, but actually we're not. We're actually not connecting. We're connecting at one level. But real human connection has taken tens of thousands of years for the social brain to create all the necessary um, uh, pathways in the brain to help us to properly connect on a human basis. And that's what has made us such social creatures and made us so effective and, and uh, successful really uh, as, uh, in, in terms of our, our, our evolution. But what worries me now is in the space of 20, 25 years, we've almost gone from uh, years, tens of thousands of years of social brain connection 
And I worry, are we going to start losing some of these skills? Are we going to start eroding them? Are young people, for example, more worried about how many points to get or how great their Instagram pictures are going up or what's, what's stuff on TikTok or whatever, rather than their, the skills they need to actually uh, operate in real life? Those, those major skills, those interpersonal skills that you and I know, Claire, are absolutely vital, do you know what I mean, for human existence. So that was the whole point of writing the book, do you know what I mean? Will people take the time. I mean, you mentioned the pandemic and I think we all learned, as you said, that it's the simple things in life that are the most important. The sitting, looking eye to eye with somebody without a mask, having a hug, putting your hand on someone's arm, a stranger, a bit of banter in a queue, that that's what makes life special. And when that was taken away and we really went back to the basics, the local walk or, you know, checking in on the neighbour, all of those things. And now things have picked back up pace again and, and, and we're back with and the get, right. get, get and right. have, have, have and we're starting to, to forget all those things and likewise with hybrid working yes. I think people are focused on the commute and how stressful that yes. was and I, I agree with that yeah. and how they can turn from their work desk to the kitchen table as yeah. a parent and a family member and it'd be a lot easier they can hang a wash out on the, yes. the yeah. clothes horse and it's not a big deal and they can feel a bit more in control of their lives but they don't realise what they're missing out on. Exactly. And I think the people who picked up your books who were really yeah. suffering with anxiety yeah. are more likely to do the four-week programme than these people now because they don't realise well, how important it really it is. is. Well, suppose I said to you that I was going to offer you a new treatment, a new, a new uh, supplement, for example. And that supplement would mean that, uh, firstly, you'd become a great conversationist. Secondly, that your workplace would be would be much more effective in your workplace, and that you would be getting on much better with all your work work people, that your romantic relationships were much better, that your friendships were deeper, that your your personal relationship was much more fulfilling, uh, that you felt happier in yourself, you felt more at peace with yourself. You felt, you know, um, your sense of humour was back, that your sense of curiosity was back, that you were that your sense of conversation was back, and all of that. Uh, without having to take any medication, without having to get involved in any social media, without having to do anything but a small amount of uh, reading and a little bit of personal mindful observation of what you're actually doing and then putting small little things into practice. To do that, imagine if you could pick up 12 really important social skills over a 12-week period that would allow you to do all of those things. Well, my goodness... Uh, your life would be totally transformed. And I have seen, for example, you take social anxiety as a very simple example. It's paralysing for the people involved. Social anxiety, for example, is 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 a classic example of, of that are, we have misconceptions about the whole world of communication and, and how we talk to each other and, and what people are actually looking at versus what people are really looking at. So, um, uh, I, I would say to people with social anxiety, for goodness sake, pick up this book or maybe pick up some of the other books that I've written and, and clear your social anxiety because you can clear your social anxiety in a very, very short period of time. And does it matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert? Does that no. play a part in this? It's a, it is very important for your conversational because if I'm a conversationist, uh, I have to actually identify, am I an introvert or an extrovert? And you may say, well, what the hell is the difference? Well, if I'm an introvert, when I go into a conversation, it's not that I don't want to go into it. I really enjoyed the conversation, but I'm exhausted after it. <laughs> so I have to go away and sit down quietly with my book and a cup of tea or something like that because I've used a lot of energy. So uh, to a certain extent, um, 
human interactions for the introvert, they, they, they actually expend energy and they have to then go away quietly and regain that energy. The extrovert, on the other hand, just loves these interactions and actually gains energy from these. So you, you, it's very important you identify what kind of person am I? Because really, and very often an introvert is living with an extrovert and unless the two really understand the way they work, it's a bit like the lark and the owl that we I, I did recently. Uh, you know, you have to understand, are you a lark or an owl? And if you're in a relationship, you need to know that. So um, if, if, for example, you know that you're an introvert versus an extrovert, then you can base your skills based on that. But people, for example, who are introverted are much better listeners. They're much better at cluing into silence. They're much better at picking up the emotions, all these wonderful skills for listening. Uh, conversationists... Um, uh, I, I always think that the biggest thing in conversation is we, we keep putting ourselves at the centre of conversation. That's the biggest mistake we make in conversation. We don't pick up on the emotions in conversation. And I, the one that, uh, that really gets to me is we don't show by our body language that we are really interested in the conversation. And a lot of the time, there's two parallel conversations. I, the, the, one of the skill sets is the whole area of nonverbal communication. So when we're having a chat here, Claire, not only are we listening to each other, but our, we have eye contact, our facial expressions, our body language, how we're using our hands. I'm terrible. I always use my hands. Um, and, you know, I've given you a raised eyebrow a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, you know, you know so, so when you think of that, you know, that's how we communicate. So uh, we're, if we're in harmony, do you know what I mean? All those, all those two parallel communication systems are in harmony. Now, suppose I could make sure that my nonverbal cues were in harmony with what I was saying. Or that I learned from another person. Oh, there's something not right here. I'm picking up some messages here from the non-verbal. From my non my social brain is picking up something from their non-verbal messages that says that what they're saying is not matching how what what they're doing. So, for example, persons say, "Well, I'm very interested in that," and they could be looking look, looking off. Oh, like, I do to my like kids the all the time. You know they know I mean? when I'm yeah. not listening yeah. to them. So, so if if you think about it, that's mm -hmm. how we learn. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if we could learn to be very aware of our of the power of our nonverbal language and how to use it properly and how to converse properly, and then uh, I had a classic example of this this morning. Um, we're terrible at at at, at interpreting nonverbal cues. So we might look at a person and we say, God, that person's very surly or that person is, you know, not, I'm not picking up a very positive vibe. To that. But if you were to actually learn that if you took time to stand back and, uh, and maybe get some information later about that person, you realise they were under real pressure. Yeah. They were struggling. I always or, think of yes, with, a, with yeah. a road rager. Yeah. And do you think all relationships can be fixed in inverted commas. If you're like a bickering couple or you have issues with your siblings or your parents or a friend where conflict comes up an awful lot well, or you I feel misunderstood, stood, yes. do you need to walk away from you, these? Well, or there, Here's a few bits of advice for conflict for people who are, who are interested. First thing, stop making it personal. That's the biggest single mistake we make. In, in So it's you're wrong and I'm right. Instead of no both of us have a point of view. Do you know? So let's take the personal out of it. I'm not making a judgment call of you, the person. I'm just having a chat about something you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Or something you're saying. Now, uh, remove the emotions from it. If you can't do that, walk away. Take a five minute break. The turtle, what I call the turtle exercise, where you have to go into your turtle shell for five minutes, go off and make a cup of coffee, go to Lewis, something like come back and find, and then kind of get your, your thoughts in order and then back in. Uh, try and try and bring conflict to a problem solving 
situation. Uh, always try and be empathetic. There's a wonderful piece in the book on how we can improve our empathy skills. So, for example, if I take the time to say, hold on a minute now, this person is very upset about this. So I have to try to work out what emotions are they expressing? Are they hurt about it? Are they very anxious about it? Are they frustrated about it? And then try to understand what is it about this situation that's making the person feel like that? And if I make the effort to make that link, that bond, that empathetic bond, and I stop making it personal and I go very quiet and I listen carefully, I'm going to resolve a huge amount of conflict very, very, very quickly. Because very quickly the person will also come down. They'll see you coming down, down, down. They'll come down, down. And suddenly you're starting talking about what is the issue in question. And very often the small issue becomes a large issue because it's made personal. So if you could, if you could really improve those skills, uh, it would transform your lives, transform your, your relationship, your personal relationship. Instead of bickering, I would say to two people, stop, start listening to each other, listening empathetically. What is it emotionally that the person is upset about? And by doing that, I'm going to get far quicker to what the issue is. And, and, and then if I'm prepared to uh, use a combination of emotional and cognitive empathy and move it to a problem-solving situation, I'll very quickly solve the problem. Most problems between couples start with small things, you know what I mean, and build up to major things because they're made too personal. And also have a sense of humour about yourself. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Yeah. That's a huge problem in, in, in modern life. We all take ourselves so seriously. Why do we take ourselves so seriously? Life, life is, should be fun. It should be, um, it, 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 you know, we, we, sh we shouldn't be getting into a situation where we make everything complicated, everything um, a, a kind of a battle of wills. You know, often a good crack, a good joke. You'll often find tensions very high in a situation. Somebody cracks a joke and every breaks their size laughing and suddenly all the tension is gone. And everybody starts saying, now, what was the problem? And when you start to look at the problem, it's often a lot simpler to solve. Uh, and that's very much the way I've always worked. You know? yeah, yeah. And as you say, empathy is a huge thing. They say empathy. there's three sides to every story, yours, yeah. mine and the truth. We yeah. both have this perspective of yes, what's really of going we on. We've just scratched the surface on this, yes, but, yes. you know, as you said, you really get into the practicalities of conversational skills, nonverbal communication that we've touched on and how we can create better social bonds that will yes. really help our own health and wellness. The book is called The Power of Connection. It's available now. Dr. Harry Barry, thank you so much for Not coming on. Claire, it was a pleasure now. Thank you. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen and Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.